0: The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. I encourage you to open your Bibles to John 21. We come this morning to our study of this final chapter of the Gospel of John. We have about three or four messages left in this uh, long, long book. And so we come to the end, we, we near the end of this wonderful section of Scripture which details for us the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. By way of reminder, let me remind you that this book contains seven signs that Christ performed to authenticate the fact that He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. We have seen seven of those already. I want to draw your attention to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, the last two verses of chapter 20. Look what it says. It says, Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so John tells us right there, the purpose of this book was to uh, chronicle for us some of the miracles or the signs of Christ, To secure belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and to confirm in our hearts that he is the son of God. We have looked at seven of those already. We have looked in chapter two about Jesus making the water into wine. Chapter four, the healing of the royal official's son. Chapter five, the healing of the lame man. Chapter six, the feeding of the multitude. Chapter six, also when Jesus walked on the water. Chapter nine, when he healed the blind man. Chapter 11, when he raised Lazarus. From the dead. And we have said, as we've looked at each one of these signs, that each one of them, in a sense, is a giant arrow or a billboard announcing Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God, and you should believe in him. We've seen seven of those. We see this morning the eighth and final sign, which confirms for us that Jesus really is who he says he is. It's a wonderful account, it's a glorious account of what took place on a sea in Galilee 2,000 years ago. If you like fishing, you're going to love this story because you're going to feel right at home as you see what heck takes place here. This account is a glorious account of how the Lord Jesus Christ provides for His own, how He takes care of His people, how He truly does minister and care for and intercede and take an interest in and is concerned about and provides for His people. This was something that the disciples needed to know. These disciples needed to understand that Christ, after his death and after his resurrection, would continue to care for them. They needed to learn that because at this point you're going to see that they came to the conclusion that they're kind of on their own. And they've got to make things kind of work for themselves. And and they're going to have to go and start providing for themselves and taking care of themselves. And so they're going to go back to what they know. And they're going to go back to their resources and their abilities and their strengths and their efforts to take care of themselves and meet their own needs rather than relying on Christ. And to show them the futility of this kind of thinking, Jesus shows up. He shows up and he contrasts for them the danger of turning to fleshly resources and the sufficiency of turning to Christ and his resources and all that he provides. And so Christ is going to draw for us this analogy or this illustration in living color of the difference between relying on ourselves and our own efforts and relying on Christ and the strength and the resources that he provides. He's going to demonstrate for these disciples and for us this morning that it's much better to go through life resting on his resources rather than our own resources. This is a lesson we all need to learn. This is a lesson each one of us this morning need to be reminded of, and many of us could say, well, I know this, I'm, I'm familiar with this, I, I, I don't need another reminder on this, and yet I want you to think back to your week this past week. In everything you did, did you rely on Christ? Did, did you find all of your resources and all of your strength and all of your sustaining grace in Him? Or did you find yourself at times this past week going to your own resources, to your own strength, to your own effort? Did you become self-reliant? If that's the case, then you need the reminder and I need the reminder. You ever find yourself doing the right things and the wrong strength? Find yourself turning to your own resources and trying to get yourself through rather than relying on Christ and his resources. If that's the case, then you need this reminder, as we all do. So we come to chapter 21 and we we need to learn these truths and these disciples needed to learn these truths as well. Let me begin just by saying that there are some scholars who believe that chapter 21 does not belong in the scriptures. That chapter 21 was a later edition and it doesn't actually belong here in the gospel of John that someone actually added it after John wrote it. And they look at chapter 20 verses 30 and 31, those verses I just read a moment ago, and they say that's the conclusion to this book. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, seems to them to be a fitting conclusion to this book. And so here's the purpose of the book. Here's why the book is written. John tells us very specifically, he says in verse 31, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the end. That's the conclusion. There's no more need to say anything after that because that's the conclusion to the book. And so they'll look at that and they say what takes place in chapter 21 is really additional. It's not in there in the original how do you respond to that? Well, as you study this and as you look at this, you have to say that chapter 21 is an epilogue. And when you read books, you know that most books have at the end of them an, an epilogue. You have a prologue, you have a body, and you have an epilogue. You have the, the ending material. It's kind of the ending conclusion. It's, it's tying up those loose ends and, and finishing the few things that need to be tidied up before the book actually concludes. That's the case with John 21. It's an epilogue. And it really does address some of those issues that are left hanging if the book ended at chapter 20. Like what? Some questions come to mind that are not answered as you come to the end of chapter 20 and need to be answered. And there requires an additional chapter. And so some of these things are, for example, what happened to the disciples? Did Christ continue to, to sustain them? Did he continue to provide for them? Did he continue to strengthen them even though he has been raised from the dead and he's going to go back to heaven? Is Christ really going to strengthen them and sustain them as he promised he would? That question's still out there. That needs to be answered. And so we see it here in the first 14 verses of chapter 21. There's another question that needs to be answered. What about Peter? Peter's denied Christ. Three times. Three times publicly Peter denies knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. What happens to him? Is he forever done? Is his ministry over? Is he forever known as the disciple who denied Christ and he's marked that way forever? Is he ever restored? That question needs to be answered. And it's not answered until chapter 21. What happens to John? It's another question. What happens to John? And we're going to find the answer to that question in the end of chapter 21. So these and other questions leave us hanging if the book ends at chapter 20. And so we need to have chapter 21 to help us answer these questions. This morning, we're going to be in the first 14 verses. And I invite you to follow along as I read. John writes, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus' Jesus, therefore, said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. And they cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. And so when they got upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up and he drew the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This account is a study of contrasts. A study of contrast between self-effort and self-reliance and looking to yourself for your own resources And the contrast of trusting Christ and looking to Christ and appropriating all the resources that he provides. And all of us need to hear this this morning. So let me give you two truths about fleshly versus spiritual resources. And as we go through this, I want you to do somewhat of a personal evaluation. And I want you to assess yourself and you say, to what degree on a daily basis am I trusting Christ for his resources Versus how am I trusting myself or my own resources? Two truths that we need to learn about that. Number one, here's the first truth. Depending on fleshly resources results in failure. Depending on fleshly resources results in failure. Look at verse number one. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. And so he begins here in verse one by saying... That Jesus appeared to the disciples after these things. What are those things? It's everything we saw in chapter 20. So after his appearance to Mary at the tomb and after his appearance to uh, the disciples without Thomas and after his appearance to the disciples with Thomas in that upper room in Jerusalem, after all that has taken place, Jesus Christ now appears or manifests himself again to these disciples. He says it twice in this verse. The word manifest occurs twice in, in verse 1. Look down in chapter, chapter 21, verse 14. He mentions it a third time. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested. And so Christ has appeared to these disciples. He has kind of taken the veil away and shown himself to them. He has made himself visible to these disciples. This time, however, it's taken place in Galilee. Up to this point, all of his post-resurrection appearances have been in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem. This is actually the seventh post-resurrection appearance of Christ. If you do a harmony of the Gospels, this is the seventh one. All of the first six occurred in and around Jerusalem. He appeared to Mary at the tomb. He appeared to the women at the tomb in Jerusalem. He appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which is near Jerusalem. He appeared to Peter around Jerusalem. He appeared to the disciples in that upper room in Jerusalem. He appeared to the disciples with Thomas in that upper room in Jerusalem. So all six of these first post-resurrection appearances have occurred in Jerusalem. Now, this one's different. This one's in Galilee. It's important. I want you to understand why. Look at verse 1. How do we know this? Jesus manifests himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is the Jewish name. Sea of Tiberias is the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. And so here the disciples have traveled from Jerusalem on up their way to Galilee, and they're at the Sea of Galilee. Now, you need to understand, this is not where Christ told them to go. Watch this. Hold your finger here in John 21 go to matthew chapter 28 matthew chapter 28 jesus gives them some very specific instructions on where they were to go and they're partially right look at matthew 28 verse 7 the angel who appears at the tomb he speaks to the women, Matthew 28, verse 7, says, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. So here's the, the angel at the empty tomb speaking to the women, saying, Go tell the disciples that Christ is going to appear before you in Galilee. And so the assumption here is you must go to Galilee. Look down in verse 10. Jesus himself shows up to the women. He said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there you will see me. So here's a specific instruction by Jesus himself to the disciples to go to Galilee. He says, I will meet you there. Tell them to go to Galilee, and I will meet them there. Now watch this, verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. You see that? So put this all together. Jesus says, tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee and specifically tell them to meet me on the mountain. Which mountain? We don't know. We don't know for sure. It doesn't tell us. But the disciples clearly knew which mountain they were to meet him on. So the the instructions are very clear. The disciples were to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee and they were to meet Christ in Galilee on the mountain. Go to chapter 21 of John. Go back to where you just were. Verse 1, after these things... Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Hmm. Right general location, right general area. They're they're in the northern part of Israel where they should be, but they're not on the mountain. Why? We don't know for sure. But let me just offer some suggestions what may be taking place here. I I, I would submit to you that the disciples did go to the mountain. They went to Galilee. They went to the mountain. And they waited. And they waited. And they waited. No Jesus. And so now at this point, they're starting to get sick of waiting around. And they're they're wondering when Christ is going to show up. And it's possible that they got tired of waiting. And they started to think like this. They started to think, well... If Jesus told us to come and now he's not here, that, that means that we now need to start taking this responsibility upon ourselves. We need to provide for ourselves. We need to take care of ourselves. We need to start putting forth our own effort and we need to kind of rely on ourselves like we did before. And so they're tired of waiting and they grew weary of that and they're somewhat impatient. So they don't have the Holy Spirit at this point, right? He came later. And so they they maybe are tired of waiting and they decide that they they need to go back to what they knew what to do, what they know how to do. They knew how to fish. They're hungry. They need to provide for themselves. They need to somehow begin taking care of themselves. They need to start providing for their needs. And so they think maybe this whole program with Jesus is over and it's all done. And that last three years was great, but the gig is up and and now I got to start going back to what I know to be true. And so they decide to leave the mountain and go back to what they knew. You see the seeds of self-effort beginning to be sown here? Do you start to see the, the seeds of self-reliance start to, to creep into their hearts? If Christ isn't going to take care of us anymore, then we're going to have to take care of ourselves. That's what happens when we try to accomplish things in our own strength and our own resources, right? Look at verse 2. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. And so John tells us here that there were seven of these disciples together and he lists for us some of their names. Peter is there. Thomas is there, Nathaniel is there, James is there, John is there, and two other disciples whom he does not mention by name. But we would presume those other two disciples to be Andrew and Philip. Why? Because if you go back to John chapter 1, that initial group of disciples called from their fishing boats was that group. It was Peter and Nathaniel and James and John and Andrew and Philip. That was the first group of disciples called from their fishing boats to go and follow Christ. And they're given the charge to go be fishers of men. Well, guess what? Three years later, there's the same group. Peter, Nathaniel, James, John, Andrew, Philip. They're all together. And you have one extra guy here, Thomas. Now, you got to understand, Thomas missed out on something already once, right? He missed on the first appearance of Christ to the disciples in that upper room. So he's thinking, I'm not missing anything else. I'm tagging along with these guys. All right? So here you have Thomas. In addition to that original group of disciples, I think it's very instructive. It's interesting to me that the same group of disciples that Jesus called initially from their fishing boats are together here again in John 21. Why? What's the point? The mission is still the same. Nothing's changed. He's called them to be fishers of men. They've spent three years with him. He's died. He's buried. He's risen from the dead. Nothing has changed. These fishers of men who were called initially are now together again, and they're still called to be fishers of men. But they've forgotten that. They've, they've lost a the sense of their commission and their charge. They, they think the plan has changed and, and they're relying on themselves and they're relying on their own resources and their own abilities. And so they start to think, well, we've got to eat. We've got to take care of ourselves. We've got to provide for our needs. We've got to have clothes. We've got to get on with our lives. We don't know what's going on with Christ, but it's time to move on. And so they start to take matters into their own hands. Now, we don't want to rag on them too hard because they're obedient. They've gone to Galilee, right? They've gone to Galilee. They've done what Jesus did, told them to do partially, but they're starting to rely on themselves and their own strength rather than on Christ. So how do you know that? Look at verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. Now, Peter's a man of action, isn't he? Peter's the leader of the group. Peter's Peter's the kind of guy, when you need something done, he's the guy. He's not a sit-around, wait-for-it-to-happen kind of guy. It's been said that there are three kinds of people, right? There are those kind of people who make things happen. There are those kind of people who watch things happen. And there are those kind of people who stand around saying, what just happened? Peter's the first kind. He's the make-things-kind-of-happen guy. And so he says, I'm going fishing. You guys want to come with me? Fine. Let's go. I'm going fishing. Now, some have suggested that this was just something they decided to do because it was a nice day, fishing's is relaxing, you know, a good thing to do on a sunny Sunday afternoon. That's possible. Now, I would agree with that. I'm not a big fisherman, but there's something fun about going fishing and kind of hanging out with the guys and throwing a line in the water and just being together, right? Fred and I did that in Canada a few years ago. Stephen, good times, you know, just kind of hanging out in the creation and enjoying being out there there's something very relaxing about that but i don't think that's what's going on here i think these guys are going back to what they knew to be true they're going back to their own resources they're going back to their own situation they're going back to what they know and they're providing for themselves and they begin to rest in their own efforts and their own abilities they're relying on their own resources you say why do i think that let me give you a couple of reasons why i think that to be true First, in John 16 verse 32, Jesus actually predicted that this would happen. John 16 verse 32, Jesus says, "An hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home." So Jesus predicts to these disciples and says, "Listen, I'm going to be crucified, and when that happens, y'all are going to bolt. You're going to scatter. You're going to leave." And when you leave, you're going to go back to your own, your own home, your own people, your own place, your own location, your own occupation, your own possessions. You're going to go back to your own. That's what I think exactly is happening right here. They went back to what they knew. They went back to their own places, their own homes, their own resources, their own possessions. They went back to their original careers and occupations because they're starting to become self-reliant. They're, they're waiting on themselves. They're trusting themselves. They're, they're finding their strength in themselves rather than Christ. It's the second reason why I think that's true. Look at verse 3. It says, They went out and got into the boat. Not a boat. They, they were not looking just for any old boat. They're not kind of scoping things out and they're looking around and they're seeing boats and they'll say, Oh, that boat will do it. They went to the boat, Peter's boat. They went to the boat that they knew was owned by someone. It, it, was, an, it was owned by someone that they knew. It, was, it belonged to somebody. And so they all got into Peter's boat. They went back to the boat that they knew. They went back to the resources that they knew. They're, they're, they're self-reliant. They're, their faith is weak. Before we rag on them too hard, we do the same thing, don't we? We begin to rely on our own resources, on our own strengths. We, 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 don't, we don't pray. We, we, don't, we don't depend on the Lord like we should for those difficult situations. We, we make our own plans and we ask the Lord to bless our plans rather than go to Him and say, Lord, what do you want in this situation? We don't abide in Christ. We don't lean on Him. We don't appropriate all that is ours in Christ. We do the very same thing. And it's so easy. We can go from day to day and one day we're doing fine and the other day we're we're self-reliant and the next day we're Christ-reliant and we kind of go through these phases and these stages just like the disciples do. We all know how that turns out, don't we? Never works very well. And the disciples needed to learn this. They needed to learn that if they're going to go and be Christ's ambassadors, they need to understand that they can't do it in their own strength. They can't do it in their own power, in their own resources. They need to know that it has to be Christ in them and through them. And so Jesus teaches them that lesson. Look at verse 3. And that night they caught nothing. They got skunked. You know, every fishing trip starts out with grand ideas, right? You're, you're going to go, and you're going to hit the mother load, and you're going you're gonna to drag in the big catch, and your boat's going to be full. Every time you go fishing, you have the hopes and expectations of a, of a great fishing trip. Well, this one ended like most of them do. They got skunked. Not one bite, not one nibble, and you know why? Listen to this. Because Jesus Christ, in his sovereign power, prevented the fish from going to Peter's boat. You thought it was bad going fishing and not being able to find the fish and not having a good day. Try fishing when Jesus actually prevents the fish from coming to you. That's a rough fishing trip. God actually rerouted every fish in the Sea of Galilee away from their boat, and there was no way they were going to catch anything. It's impossible. Now think about it. These guys, these guys know the lake. These are, these are fishermen by trade. They're professionals. They know how to fish. They know the hot spots. They know where to fish. They know when to fish. They know the lake. This is what they've been doing all their life. And this night, this particular night, they're struggling and they're toiling and they didn't catch a thing. That's what happens when you approach life in your own strength. That's what happens when you turn to your own self as your own provisions, as you begin to look to yourself for the resources that you need to go through that day or that event or your life. And that's exactly what Jesus wants these guys to understand. They have to understand that if they're going to be his representatives, they can't conduct themselves that way. They need Christ's strength sustaining them and strengthening them. Remember John 15 verse 5? Remember he told them this beforehand. In the upper room, is there together the upper room discourse? He says to them in John 15, verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So he's told them this before. He's wanted them to understand this before, that when you separate yourself from me, you're not going to be able to accomplish what you set out to accomplish. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And in the Greek, he literally says, you are not able to do nothing. Bad English, but it's good Greek. It's a double negative. You're not able to do nothing. That's Jesus' way of saying there's not even a chance that you're going to be able to accomplish anything in your strength, in your abilities, with your own resources. Apart from Christ In the energy of the flesh, our efforts to serve God will be as empty as Peter's fishing boat that night. And that's what he needed them to understand. That's what he needs us to understand as well. And we've got to learn this lesson as much as those disciples needed to learn that lesson. We've got to understand that we can go through life and there's two paths. We can choose to walk with Christ intimately. We can abide in him and his strength and his resources will pulse through us and strengthen us and enable us. Or we can kind of go do the same things and the same activities with our own power and our own strength. And it will always end in failure. You see, it's so easy to be fooled into thinking that because we're doing a lot or we're busy or we're active or or we've got a lot of things going on that that we must be doing something for the cause of Christ. But that's not always the case. I remember reading a number of years ago about an exhibition that was held in London's Hyde Park back in 1851. It was an exhibition that was designed to to show off the, the technological advances of the day. And so in that day, it was steam. And so they had steam locomotive and a steam Loom and a steam organ and a steam cannon. Well, the first prize winner that year was a steam invention with 7,000 moving parts. It had bells, it had whistles, it made noises, it, it did all kinds of things. It, it, the gears made a lot of noise when they turned this thing on, but you know what? This contraption did nothing. It did nothing. All they did is turn it on. And the bells went off, and whistles went off, and things moved, and steam came out, and gears moved. That, that's all it did. You see, it's easy to confuse activity with accomplishment, right? It's easy to assume that because we're active and busy and doing all things, kinds of things that we're accomplishing something. But friends, we have to understand that our own resources will not strengthen us to accomplish the task that God has given us. Self-effort always results in failure. That's what these disciples needed to learn. They needed to learn it as they are preparing to be sent out as his representatives once the Holy Spirit comes. So Jesus is teaching them that lesson. Verse 4, look what he says. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So imagine this scene. The disciples are in the boat, they're they're fishing, they've been fishing all night, They're, they're tired, they're hungry, they're fatigued, they're discouraged. And they see this shape on the shape on the on the beach. He's walking. They didn't know it was Jesus at this point. Maybe they were too far away, or maybe it was too hazy, or maybe it was still still too dark. Maybe they were actually supernaturally prevented from recognizing Christ, or maybe they didn't recognize Christ in his glorified body. That's possible as well, that, that they didn't recognize him as the resurrected Christ, which has happened in a couple of times as well. By the way, This is one of the dangers of depending on your own resources. You're separate from Christ. If they had gone to Galilee and met him at the mountain, they would have been with him. They would have been in his presence. They would have been close by him. But here they are kind of doing their own thing and their own efforts and their own abilities. And Christ is on the beach and they're in the boat and they're separated from Christ. That's what happens when you depend on your own resources. Puts you at a distance from him. Verse 5. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? I love that question. Isn't that a great question? You don't have any fish. And I wonder if there was a little sarcasm in his voice. Probably not, because he's Jesus and he's perfect and he would never do that. But if I was saying that, I would be like, Huh, you haven't got any fish, do you? I kind of want to rub it in a little bit, and that's probably not what happened. But it's his way here of saying, hey, guys, how's it going out there on your own, in your own abilities? And the way he phrases this question is he expects a negative answer. He expects no to be the answer. Hey, guys, how's it going? You don't have any fish, do you? See what Christ is doing? He's getting them to focus on the futility of their own resources. He's getting them to see how, how empty it is when you depend on yourself, when, when you look to yourself for your own abilities or your own resources. So Jesus shows up and he asks them, Hey, hey guys, how'd that work out for you? Doing your own thing? On your own? He's showing them he, he, they couldn't make it on their own. They, they couldn't get there on them on themselves. He, he wanted Peter and the rest of the disciples to learn that they couldn't just design their own life, come up with their own plans, and expect to come out ahead. You can't do that. You can't just kind of make your own plans and ask God to bless them and assume everything is going to be good. He's getting them here to admit their failure. Guys, you didn't catch anything, did you? I love their answer. Look at verse 5. They answered him, No. What else are you going to say? Right? I mean, here's, here's the creator of the universe asking you the question if you've caught anything. Their boat's empty, their nets are empty, and there's not a whole lot you can say. No, didn't catch anything. You see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's getting them to recognize that you don't have any abilities apart from me. You don't have any strength or resources apart from me. And the same thing that those disciples needed to learn, friends, we need to learn as well. You can't just assume that because we're resourceful or have natural abilities or are hard workers that we've got it all together. Someone has said that serving Christ in our own strength, trying to do it our way, is like going after Moby Dick with a pickle fork. You can't do it, right? You're not going to get anywhere. There's there's no way. You, You don't have any resources to do these things on your own. So Jesus says to these disciples, and he's saying to us this morning, Whose effort are you progressing in? Whose strength and whose resources are you conducting yourself in? You weren't saved by self-effort. And you can't be sanctified or grow or mature or go through life by self-effort either. And that's the first lesson they needed to learn. They needed to see the futility of their own efforts and the futility of their own resources. And so he brings them to a point with a vivid illustration no fish. Number two. There's a second truth about these resources, and it's very simple. Appropriating Christ's resources results in abundance. Okay? The very flip side is true. You're going to approach life in your own strength, in your own resources, and your own abilities. You're going to fail. It's going to be futile. But when you come to Christ and you look to Him, when you depend on Him, when you commit your ways to Him, when you pray, when you seek Him then when you appropriate his resources, it will result in abundance. Look at verse 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. Now, remember, they still don't know this is Christ. And if I'm in the boat with those guys, I'm thinking, "Who, who do you think you are? I mean, we've been in this boat all night and we've been fishing. Do you really think we've been fishing the left side all night? And Jesus is out there and he says, throw it on the right side. And in my flesh, I'm thinking, who's the fisherman here, right? Who's the guy? Who are the people who have the best advantage to know what's going on out in the lake? It's we do. But they didn't respond that way. They did exactly what Jesus commanded them. Verse six. So they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. The word for great number is the word plethos, where we get our word plethora. It means a great number. There were so many fish. There's an overabundance, an excess, a surplus, a great abundance of fish. Their nets are so full. In fact, they're so full, they can't even haul it in. They can't even bring it into the boat because it's so full of fish says they were not able to haul it in, and the way it's written in the original is they were straining, and they were working, and they were tugging, and they were pulling. And you've got seven guys in a boat trying to yank this thing up into the boat. They can't do it. I love this. The same Christ who kept the fish from going to Peter's boat now has summoned all the fish in the deep blue sea right there beneath their boat. It's a wonderful illustration. These guys are tired, spent, discouraged. They've been working all night. They've been laboring. They fished the right side of the boat. They fished the left side of the boat. They've gone to their their, their hot spots. They've, They've gone all over the sea and nothing. And all of a sudden, Christ shows up. And he tells them, put it on the right side. And they had more fish than they could ever imagine. Friends, that's the illustration That's the truth. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate to them and to us, that when you allow Christ to take care of providing for you, when you allow Christ to meet your needs, when you depend on Him, when you commit your ways to Him, you're going to get more than you ever bargained for. He's showing them that by themselves they could accomplish nothing, but with Him anything is possible. So here they are in the boat. They've got a net full of fish. They can't even haul it in. And I wonder, what are they thinking at this point? Hold your finger here and go back to Luke chapter 5. Because I think it's at this point that they begin to understand who this person on the beach is. Luke chapter 5. Did you know that the exact same, nearly the exact same incident occurred three years before this? And it was this incident three years prior to this that actually God used, Christ used to, to draw these men to himself as his disciples. Look at Luke 5, verse 1. Now it came about that while the multitudes were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is another term for the lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. And he, Jesus, saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Remember Simon's boat? Here it is. Here's his boat. And he asked them, asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, Peter, put out the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered and said, master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding, I will let down all the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so, they would, so that they began to sink. Same incident. Almost the exact same setting. Jesus says, you throw your nets over, you're going you're gonna to catch fish, more fish than you could ever imagine. How did this impact Peter? Look at verse 8. But when Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. This profoundly impacted Peter. Is he sees the glories of Christ and the majesty of Christ and the power of Christ. Verse 9, for amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the great catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. Fast forward three years. Almost the exact same setting. Same group of guys. They're in a similar boat, maybe the same boat, probably the same boat. Same situation. Christ shows up, and suddenly there's this massive catch of fish. I have to imagine at this point, they recognize this is Christ. In fact, look at verse 7, back in John 21. Go back to John 21, verse 7. Look what it says. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. There's John. John says, ah, it's Christ. Now remember, John is always the first one to understand before Peter. Peter's the man of action. He's the first one to do something. John's the first first one to understand things. Remember, it was John at the tomb who understood that the the tomb was open and Christ was raised. It was John who understood that first. Here, the situation is similar. John understands this is Christ, and he says, this is the Lord. Verse 7. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Once Peter understood this was Christ, he's not a man who's just going to sit around. He's a man of action, right? He's impetuous. He's brash. He, he, he does first, then thinks later. And I love that about Peter because he loved Christ so much, he simply had to get to him. Now, normally you take your clothes off to go swimming, in a sense, Here he's putting it on, and I think there's a reason he's doing that, because he wants to be respectful. He's stripped to the waist when he's fishing, but now as he goes to stand in the presence of the risen Christ, he he throws that outer garment on. And I love what verse 7 says, and he threw himself into the sea. Imagine big, burly Peter doing a cannonball (laughs) off the boat. And I don't think he was doing the butterfly to get to Jesus I think he's thrashing and he's kicking and he's flopping and flailing and kicking all over the place just to get to shore. And I wonder if at this point Jesus had a smile on his face. Peter, Peter, Peter. There you go. You can hardly swim, Peter. And look at you. You're just flopping and you're flailing all around. But, oh, Peter, I love you. Here's Peter on his way into Christ. Remember I said when you depend on your own resources, what happens? You're you're distanced from Christ. But when you depend on Christ and his resources, suddenly that fellowship is restored, isn't it? That's what you're about to see. Peter and the disciples, the rest of them are about to be restored to fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ because they've they've seen his resources, they've seen him provide. And that's what happens when you depend on Christ's resources. Your fellowship with him is reestablished. Look at verse 8. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards. You see, Peter couldn't even wait a hundred yards. He, he couldn't even hold it in the boat for a hundred yards. The, he had to get himself out of the boat, flopping and flailing into the water to get to Jesus. But the other disciples came in the You see, they're a little more reserved. They're a little more sensible. They're, they're a little less impetuous. And here they come, dragging the net full of fish. Look what they saw when they arrived. Verse 9. So when they got out of the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. What, what a wonderful scene must have greeted them. These tired, discouraged, beleaguered disciples who've been out all night trying to get a few fish to feed themselves. Suddenly they show up on shore and the creator of the universe had made breakfast for them. Isn't that glorious? And he didn't even need to use their fish. He just made his own. The God of the universe made breakfast for these discouraged disciples. Shows you the tender care of Christ for his own. Shows you the tender mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ to meet those who are his own. I want you to notice one other thing about this verse. It says that there was a charcoal fire. You remember the other place the charcoal fire is mentioned in John? There's only one other place. It's that charcoal fire in John 18 that Peter was warming himself around as he three times denied Christ. A few few days later, actually, he's at another charcoal fire. And as we're going to see next week, it was at that charcoal fire that Peter was gloriously restored to ministry and relationship with Christ. Verse 10. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. So Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So Peter goes out to the boat, and presumably the the, the smaller fish have been separated out now because it says it was full of large fish. And and Peter, he's probably a pretty big guy. He's a burly guy. He he begins pulling that net in shore, and they count. And so they start counting one fish, two fish, three fish, four fish. 153 fish. Some wonder why John has put this number in here. There's been some pretty fanciful suggestions offered for why this number is here. Some say that these fish were not counted until the shore has been reached in order to teach us that the exact number of the elect remains unknown until they've reached the shore of heaven. That's one suggestion. Others say that it just means that lots and lots and lots of people are going to be saved. Some have actually suggested that the, word, the number 153 refers to the 153 different species of fish, and therefore it means that the universal appeal of the gospel is for all people, and all people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people will be saved. Some say that 153 is the sum of the numbers of 1 to 17, and it's the sum of 10 plus 7, and so 10 is the Ten Commandments, and 7 is the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I don't buy any of those. They were just a lot of fish. I think that's how we have to understand it. There were just a lot of fish, and Jesus is riveting their attention on the superiority of his resources. He provides, he sustains, he strengthens. Verse 12. So Jesus said to them, "'Come and have breakfast.' None of the disciples ventured to question, "'Who are you?' Knowing that it was the Lord, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise.'" Not only does Christ fix the meal, he serves the meal. And so here's the tender, gracious, kind Christ. Not only making breakfast for them, but serving and providing it for them. That's what I love about this passage. Christ really provides for his own. And Christ really gives you the resources that you need to live today, tomorrow, to accomplish what you need to accomplish, to get through what you need to get through. all the resources that you need are in Christ. You lack nothing. And the point of this whole passage is there are two ways to live. You can live in your own strength and you can live in your own power and you can turn to your own resources. And if you do, you're going to end up in failure like these disciples did. Or... You can turn to Christ and you can appropriate all the resources that are yours in him. And you can have everything you need for life and for godliness. And you can have everything at your disposal for you to conduct yourself in the way that God has called you to do. So which way are you living? These disciples needed to be brought face to face with a reality that they can't live in their own resources and their own strength. And I wonder this morning, which way are you living? Do you recognize the futility of your resources and does it make you turn to Christ and appropriate the resources that he provides? Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for a vivid illustration. Lord, an illustration that that actually presents itself in living color that we can see with the imagination of our minds, Lord, this, this scenario played out on that Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago. Lord, the same thing that those disciples needed to learn, we, needed, we need to learn. So I pray, Father, as we leave here today that, that we will depend on You with great dependence. We will commit our ways to You. We will pray that we'll consult You that we won't just make plans and barge ahead and move ahead and expect you to bless those plans, but Lord, that you would cause us to be deeply dependent and then that we would appropriate the resources that are ours in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org.